0: be talking about a controversial issue um, the budget um, is it controversial? It is because is there really a budget crisis in the u c system and um what's going on um, with us is uh economist Peter Donahue. welcome to the show hi Dan hi uh, I'm glad you could come on because you're the one that probably knows more about the u c budget than any of us uh listening. <laughs> And um, what is your basic thesis about the UC budget?
1: Well, I think part of the principal problem is that we're looking at the wrong sources of information for what the university's overall financial condition and resources really are. We've been heard from HR people, human resources, from labor relations people, from public relations people, from budget people, but we haven't talked to the people who have heard from the people who actually are responsible for telling and absolutely having to tell the truth about the university's overall financial condition and resources. It's fiduciaries. So what we're doing instead in this study that we've done for the Coalition of University Employees, is to look at the documents produced by those folks who are sworn to tell the truth for the university, not people who are basically sworn to tell whatever the university tells them to say.
0: So you're saying we should look at the financial statements, not at their budget?
1: Right. I think that we think about financial statements, people, and sometimes the president apparently has his own, understanding of it, President Udoff. They say it's boring accounting stuff, but actually the annual audited financial statements are, in fact, the university's sworn representation of its overall financial condition and its resources available, uh, not any documents that are budgets. Budget by their nature are speculative. They look forward into the future, like your household budget. As a consequence, it's whoever it is. It's still their best guesses about what they'll be spending, what they'll be receiving, what they'll have on hand at the end of the year. The financial statements are, in fact, Documents which have been produced according to generally accepted accounting principles and which have been vetted by at Arthur for the university, Cooper, to make sure that they re- represent the university's finances as, as accurately as possible. As a consequence, uh, we think the attention ought to be focused on those documents the same way banks or lenders or bond rating agencies focus on them rather than any speculation about the future.
0: And you mentioned bond rating agencies. Uh, didn't UC just get its uh, rating uh, upped?
1: Well, it's, uh, yes, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the university discovered they had a fiscal emergency, and a month later, the bond rating agencies raised their bond rating agencies to a AA1+, plus. hardly the hallmark of an institution in fiscal crisis. Uh, for example, by comparison, the state's bond rating is now one notch above junk. <laughs> um, finally, UC's financial condition is somewhat different than the state of California's, although you would get the impression from UC that somehow it lived and died and depended upon what happened at the state. That plainly exaggeration in fact probably misrepresents their overall financial condition and their relationship to the
0: state. Uh, in terms of relationship to the state, UC gets only uh, less than 20%, right, of the state uh, f- uh, funding is from the state.
1: Yes, in fact, what the shortage in the last published annual, audited annual financial statement was that UC received less than 20% of its revenues from the state of California, although state, university, rather university officials now are saying the number is closer to 13%. By comparison, the California State University system depends upon 80 to 80, 85 to 87% of its resources come from the state. So when the state of California catches a cold, CSU basically catches pneumonia. That's not the position for UC, which is just the opposite. Almost 87% of its resources, or someplace between, let's say, 80 and 87% of its resources, come from non-state sources.
0: But the university is trying to uh, lay everything, uh, have the students bail out the university's uh, lack, uh, lack of state funding this year um, by increasing student fees.
1: Well, it certainly isn't anything new. I mean, if you go back to 1991, tuition and fees, for example, for students at the University of California have increased 277 percent even before the proposed tuition and fee increase is beginning this coming midterm. Um, by comparison, state resources have increased about 57 percent. Um, so basically tuition and fees have gone up at, m- at more than five times as much as state funding has.
0: And why, why, does, the, why does the university argue that it can't touch that money?
1: well what money i guess it comes down to is that people sometimes don't understand that under generally accepted accounting principles there are very clear rules for determining what's available and what's not available and under generally accepted accounting principles the distinction is are the resources restricted that is to say are their uses limited by a contract with an outside entity a law a grant a bond an endowment whatever it might be or even a contract with a, with a with a customer um, those are restricted resources There means you know, their Contracts without entities or somehow enforceable in court if they aren't used properly. What our focus has been on is what are called under generally accepted accounting principles unrestricted resources, those which under generally accepted accounting principles which the university swears by and which its auditors confirm those resources which are available for any legal purpose the university chooses. Well, apparently what the university is telling us is, well, sure, they're unrestricted, but we've chosen not to use them for teaching, for public service, for research, uh, and more importantly, we're going to have students make up the difference. Is the,
0: it, this is, is yeah, sorry, is the bulk of this in uh, medical center r- resources uh, funding? Uh,
1: the medical centers actually have their own resources, unrestricted resources, which they retain, and a substantial portion of the of of the net income that the medical centers generate winds up that's unrestricted winds up going to UCOP, the Office of the President.
0: So, have you gotten a breakdown of what these unrestricted resources are supposedly committed uh, to or for? Well,
1: and that's one of the odd questions because whenever we've met with university officials up to the V level, the vice presidents of budget, the vice presidents of finance administration, they always begin by giving us examples, which having looked at this for quite a while, including mem- many members of coalition of university employees who actually know Quite a bit about university budgeting the resources because quite often they're the people who manage those resources. What we've determined in the process is that the university seems to have intentions um, at the same time what they say they're committed resources but what that means is they had the choice to decide where to commit them. Our issue has been that since the university was created as a constitutional entity, it was given tax-exempt status, it was done so because it had a core mission, as it describes itself, of teaching, research, and public service. We don't quite understand why the decision to commit resources to future uses down the road at the expense of teaching, research, and public services makes any sense. It may make sense from a banking point of view, it may make sense from a bond rating point of view, but it doesn't make a lot of sense if you consider that the people of California have empowered the University of California and given them a tax-exempt status simply because it was expected to deliver these principal elements of its core mission, teaching, research, and public service. So what we've been told each time is we've given examples, but each time we sort of poked at the examples and discovered the examples generally don't explain anywhere near even more than a fraction. More importantly, Dan, the key thing to understand about it is that if resources were in fact already restricted, as they are in GAP under accept accounting principles, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So when the university says things are committed, they're non-discretionary, they're not available, they're reserved, they're set aside, they're subject to management discretion, those are all words that sound like restricted, but if they were restricted, they would just say restricted. What we're talking about is a choice to take unrestricted resources accumulated over decades, and instead of using it to meet your, pursue your primary mission, instead it's look, apparently appears to be trying to aggrandize an empire.
0: It's like setting aside money for a rainy day.
1: Right, it is. In some respects, you can see that point of view, certainly from the point of view people at UCOP, particularly in finance and administration. But it's akin to, say, people making double payments on their mortgages for those, those who actually own a house. You will save money in the long run. But if it means you can't pay for your kids' lunches at school, it may not, be the prior, may, be, may not be the appropriate goal.
0: But my question is, when is the rainy day? Isn't today a rainy day?
1: Well, you would appear to be,
2: given
1: <laughs> <laughs> <different laughs> what we're talking about, but I guess part of it is it may be not that rainy. Um, hmm. When the university says, for example, they have an $800 million shortfall from state appropriations, what they're saying is they didn't receive as much as they expected. Now, $800 million for ordinary people sounds like an awful lot of money. But well, when you're looking at what the university has on hand to begin this pre- previous fiscal year, five point four billion dollars. Hmm. Uh, eight hundred million dollars seems like a small dollar amount, particularly when we consider that's not actual eight hundred million dollar reduction. That's simply eight hundred million dollars less than they asked for, which isn't the same thing at all.
0: And they're trying to impose, um, you know, pay cuts and on the employees, and they've uh, done that on faculty and. Uh non-union staff, and they're beginning to uh, try to impose it on unionized staff. Um, Why would they do that if they have the money uh, set aside for even other purposes that they could draw on?
1: Well, the the why is pretty much your guess is as good as mine, because in some respects, if you look at these resources on hand, many of the folks that we're talking about aren't being paid from state sources anyways. For Hmm. example, in the Q Union, only 30 percent, That represents clerical and allied trades. Only 30% of employees are paid from state resources. We have many more folks who get money from sales and services, from contracts with outside outside businesses along the way. And in the process, what we're getting is a notion that somehow everybody has to share the pain. Although we do notice that when the university comes to making exclusions, they don't started off calling them exemptions, but now they're calling them exclusions. They're apparently not t- touching, or hoping to touch anyone whose resources are coming from non-state sources that could be contractually enforceable, i.e., restricted resources. They seem to be telling employees one thing, but telling their prospective lenders and their bond rating agency is something entirely different.
0: What, what do you mean?
1: Well, what I think is that if you look at what they're reporting to the folks who read their audited financial statements, they're showing why they deserve a double A one plus bond rating. They have substantial resources. $5.4 billion is equivalent to almost 25% of total operating expenses. That's a pretty good reserve. Certainly the state of California would wish to have anything close to something like that. When we're looking at these kinds of numbers and resources on hand, it would not appear, as you said, if this money was being set aside for a rainy day, it would appear to be rainy enough (laughs) What they're telling employees, that's not what they're telling outside lenders and and bond rating agencies.
0: At the talk on campus uh, that Q organized uh, that you were at, at, uh, one of the talks you gave at UC Irvine, you mentioned that maybe it's a PR thing that they want to show that UC is uh, just responding like the Cal State system uh, by doing furloughs and all that. I think that that if
1: you look at what's going on, and someone suggested this at one of the presentations we made at, at Berkeley, was that we're looking at something that everybody, quote, everyone knows there's an economic crisis. Everyone knows there's a larger financial crisis. Everyone knows the state is experiencing a fiscal crisis. Uh, and so the, apparently the strategy here has been that since everybody knows those things are true, why don't we say we're experiencing the same problem? It appears from what's coming out of the office of the president and his staff is that they're trying to mobilize people, whether it's students whether it's employees, whether it's parents, whether it's other friends of UC or other folks who depend upon public service, to basically say, look, UC is really broke, contact your legislature and say, look, these are people, whether it's students or employees or others, are feeling pain, give more money to UC. My sense of this discussion is that we're really missing the point. We're seeing it as basically an opportunistic strategy to try to capitalize on a real discomfort and pain outside and mischaracterizing universities experiencing it too.
0: So you think this is just a political ploy to try to get uh, to mobilize uh, a, reac- a reaction and an attack on the state legislature?
1: Well, I think it's not just that. There are other elements involved. I think one element involved is there plainly is an effort to try to cause to pull back on employees' compensation. Certainly the university did that in the early 90s when yes. they announced that employees had to take wage cuts at a time when the university cleared almost four, half a billion dollars in the year that they took the cut. Um, Similarly, we've heard similar claims back in 2001, 2002, 2003 uh, along the way, but I think the third element here, which is also not a secret, in fact, none of this information is secret, it's just not widely known, or at least it's not as widely promoted as I would describe the misinformation campaign, is that the university president seems to have made it clear, along with some of his protégés, or rather his mentors, among the regions who hired him, that their goal is to restructure the university away from undergraduate education towards more profitable graduate and uh, professional school training where the resources and reserves are even greater. Similarly, there has been discussions of an increasing number of -of out-of-state students because, of course, they pay twice as much as in-state students do. So I think there are a number of elements that are going on here along the way, and I think even on, on the lowest levels, oh, employers, the department has units are being given the opportunity to single out who they want to put on the street, who they want to lay it off, who they want to get rid of, and so the notion is everybody can take this advantage of an opportunity to solve their problems, albeit at the expense of students and employees.
0: I think actually out of state students pay three times as much because right now they pay about thirty thousand uh, in fees, and if the rate increase goes up, they would pay forty thousand, which is like a you know going to Ivy League, I think.
1: Well, it's
0: pretty close, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, if they do that, that means that you know what happened to the master plan for California for you know what the master plan was supposed to make uh, UC accessible to people living in California.
1: Well, the master plan had a number of participants who were, were involved in ex- being drafted and involved a number of interest and in a lot of negotiation involved. The proposed restructuring seems to be being driven by the president's office and certain members of the regents along the way, and they seem to have their notion is that, this, that, this, that whatever the problem is, the solution is putting on the expense of the students and employees.
0: Yeah, and the makeup of this commission for the future that you see is very top-heavy with UCOP folks.
1: Well, I guess it's more comfortable than if they fall asleep in the meeting. They can wake up and recognize everybody. Um, But the idea of limiting the discussion to people who have already been responsible for driving the university and presumably leading it over recent years—that presumably were responsible for leading us into this particular crisis—having the same people in charge. Well, it sounds like uh, Lehman Brothers, of course. And we have Mr. Taylor, who's vice president for finance, who of course naturally comes from Lehman Brothers. It seems as though what we're doing is saving the people. If there's a crisis, saving the people who led us into the crises.
0: You and mentioned, that, yeah, is, sorry, uh, sure. you, you mentioned these uh, people from Lehman Brothers, but is it a matter of individuals uh, or is it a matter of the system? I mean, what, what can, you know, even if, I know at the G- uh, September 24th uh, rallies across the state, people said, uh, lay off Udolph, but even if he goes, is there going to be a change?
1: Well, I think people sometimes, when people are talking rhetorically, you know, for, 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 for polemically trying to make an argument, they'll single out an individual. But I frankly don't really see this. If anybody would be the culprits, it would be the people who hired President Udoff. But beyond that, I think there are many people involved in this along the way. As we've noted, has been noted painfully by many employees, especially that some of the people who are actually art, the architects of this restructuring actually got raised this year. So in that regard, I don't. Th- I think you're right. It's probably more systemic, more institutional than it is personal, although plenty of the president has been the catalyst for making this move.
0: He denies that he gets over 800000 uh, in salary. Now he says it's 600000
1: Well, Well, whatever it is, it's a lot from my point of view, and I understand <laughs> he, he's, he probably feels underpaid next to the football coaches.
0: Do you think there should be a cap on executive salaries in the public schools, uh, publicly funded institutions?
1: Well, I think that's one of those issues that Two, there are two edges of it. One side is that will it materially change the numbers overall? Would it change our financial position, at least according to the story they're telling us? No, if you cut people's salaries in half, I don't think it would change the university's overall financial condition and resources. But our point is we don't see the university's overall financial condition and resources in so much trouble. On the other hand, the notion that somehow that these people should be – compensation should be linked to the people who they view are their corporate peers as opposed to the, their, their what they like to keep describing as their fellow employees. Employees, I think that's misguided. I think that's missing the point. Plainly, in other countries, even in public university systems, compensation is nowhere near what it is here in the United States. Their notion is they have to pay this to get the talent that they need. I would have to say, then where's the beef? Where's the talent delivering us if they brought us to this particular juncture?
0: You know, a lot of people go uh, run for public office, and the salaries aren't very high there. So that's a bogus argument, it seems to me.
1: Yeah, I think that the notion that your commitment is to public education as opposed to a professional career, is probably really the test right here. Because as I see it along the way, the fact that people have been able to ramp up their salaries over the course of decades, moving from institution to institution, doesn't suggest either much loyalty to their institutions, nor for that matter, a terribly deep commitment to public education, except as they view it as the bakings of basically another corporation, another business.
0: I don't understand why they are actually implementing these furloughs, because couldn't they have just uh, cut people's pay and leave it at that?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things going on, certainly in negotiations with the university. We, in terms of working and bargaining, working with with Q, the Coalition of University Employees, we have made proposals, even though we don't accept the premise that the university is in a fiscal crisis as it is being characterized, we have made proposals which have more than addressed the amount of money which they claim to need from clerical employees. Many of whom make less than $30,000 a year. what we've pointed out when we've made these offers is they involve basically trading long-term for short-term benefits, money for non-money benefits. And what the university told us each time for all six proposals is they're not interested. They want it out of people's paychecks. I think it's rather clear what they want their pound of flesh for people who know the Merchant of Venice. They insist on that. It isn't enough to get the equivalent of resources or savings, and they won't consider any ways of saving that would come out of their pocket. They insist it has to come out of employees and out of students themselves.
0: It seems like they're just following the plan, right? If the university imposes a plan, they want everybody to buy in on it.
1: Well, I think that's their basic engine. I mean, the university is an information agency, and I think that sometimes nothing prevents that from being an institution which generates misinformation. I really do think that much of the goal here is to do two things at one time. One, foster restructuring, including allowing the president to recapitulate and demonstrate his hold on the university. And secondly, to try to put pressure on the legislature to somehow provide additional funding for UC. Because right now, the UC has very few friends in Sacramento, according to lobbyists we've spoken with.
0: Yeah, and I overheard uh, Chancellor Drake of Irvine uh, talking to the faculty after one of his town halls, and he said, "We have, uh, you know, we have no friends in the legislature right now, and so are they out to uh, get get him, get them, get UC."
1: I don't think so at all. I think what we're we're missing is that here we are talking about not getting as much money as we asked for at a time when cities and counties and state agencies and people who depend upon state agencies are actually seeing closures, reductions, layoffs loss of pay along the way, it's very hard to look at UC's financial condition, particularly as they reported in the audited documents, and have much sympathy when you're telling people in Orange County that there isn't an eligibility worker to process their claims for CalWORKs. They'll have to wait three weeks longer than it should take, and they have no income. From a legislative standpoint, those constituencies, as well as state employees, probably have their attention more than UC, particularly given UC's financial condition.
0: Do you think this plan um, by one of the state, assembly, uh, state legislators to, uh, to take over, take out away uh, UC's autonomy, is that going to go anywhere?
1: Uh, that's something that's a little bit beyond my reach. Uh, uh, what I suggest would be is it's probably more responsible for the legislature to take more aggressive oversight on the use of resources. For example, the university is appropriated a certain amount of money for compensation in a lump sum from the state. That isn't allocated, say, across the board so that they get a 4% increase, everyone gets a 4% increase. That's instead allocated a lump sum. So here we are receiving a lump sum. We have the lowest paid people being proposed to take pay cuts. We have the highest people getting raised. Raises, it might be a place for the legislature to assert itself when it comes to that because that kind of inequity. Unfortunately, not only looks bad, but I think it also plays badly and has a, doesn't have a positive effect on employee or in student attitudes along the way. That might be the most immediate thing they might do, which is they already have a handle over their contribution through state appropriations to the university. Maybe what they need to do is a little bit more follow-up in terms of making sure that those resources are used appropriately, not being used to reward people based on what someone has an idea what the market rate ought to be for an $800,000 administrator.
0: Well, Drake was saying at this town hall that we have to work more for less pay.
1: Well, I think for the chancellors are, well, I don't know. I don't know how much the chancellors knows. but honestly, when we went and talked to people at the UCOP office and talked to the vice presidents, we first asked Mr. Lenz, who's the budget director, and I have nothing against these people personally, uh, how they could explain why these resources which are in their reported documents weren't available. He told us he just didn't know, and he referred us to Mr. Taylor, Vice President for Administration and Finance. At that point, then, we talked to Mr. Taylor, and Mr. Taylor started throwing examples out to us, examples which, frankly, we were able to dismiss by pointing out they represent less than 4% of the resources we were discussing.
0: So they know, at that level, they know there are unrestricted funds.
1: Yes, I think they do know. At least their documents know. So it's possible that folks who don't read financial reports, who haven't understood this, whether it be head librarians or campus chancellors, they may not know that because in their lives what matters is the budget they get appropriated from higher levels. It's unlikely that anybody's going to basically tell folks who allocate your resources to you what you get to spend or don't get to spend that they're misrepresenting their financial condition. But it's certainly clear from what those folks are saying is that they're misinformed.
0: And the people down here, uh, the people down in the chain of command lower down cannot question it.
1: Well, it seems it's very, I work with a lot of institutions, both public universities as well as in private and public sector, and it's pretty uncommon to find department heads or managers who are dependent on authorities above them for their budgets to really stand up and speak out too much about it when it comes to, when they feel they've been disserved or where their financial resources have been misrepresented.
0: Uh, you know, I read an article in, um, oh, it's the register, OC, Re- Orange County Register, where Udoff was questioned about this uh, whole issue about why doesn't he spend more of the reserves. And he said, well, do you th- don't you think, uh, do you really think this is going to just be- last one year? Uh, so his point was that this is going to take many years, so he needed to put some money in reserves.
1: Well, the reserves have been put in, and he hasn't put anything in the reserves. The university has accumulated $5.5 billion in unrestricted net assets since 1991. President UDOT didn't put any penn- pennies in the bank. He's been taking it out before he's put some in. So in that regard, take, get, taking him claiming that what's happened is the result of his efforts... Those resources were accumulated to the efforts of employees of the University of California, not a Johnny-come-lately who just bounced in from the University of Texas. Now, past that and having looked down the road, when your notion is that you have, quote, an $800 million shortfall, but you have, at, you have unrestricted reserves equivalent to roughly six, seven times as much, it would appear this would be the right time to use those under resources. reserves, but it appears to be a bit like what John Maynard Kane said about capital. It's the cake that always grows, but apparently can never be eaten. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I think the other implication of what he said is that uh, they're going to do more next year to try to extract more money from workers and students, Uh, that this is just going to not end. This furlough plan, or so-called furlough plan, is not going to just be a one-year thing.
1: Well when we made proposals in bargaining to address the furlough and we asked for we said, look, we'll make these make these compromises and concessions to to assist you, even though we don't buy your premise, although now they're so bought into their story they almost can't back down from it along the way. Right. Also said the condition for us doing so would be that there'd be a guarantee of no layoffs. In other words, we would take furloughs and other sacrifices without layoffs. And they told us absolutely no they would not make that promise of no layoffs. Now, from that standpoint, these guys don't know an awful lot about bargaining, but then what would the president know? He was in Texas, so they don't even have unions.
0: Well, he, you know, the this uh, kind of negotiation tactic uh, is kind of scary because th- I guess the, the university's position is that even with these uh, pay cuts and furloughs, they can still lay people off.
1: Yes, it is. And that's why Q made the proposal that we would have no layoffs in exchange for concessions around furloughs. And they refused it. The university refused it.
0: In the Q Union how many days notice do workers get before a layoff?
1: Well Right now, there is no, in their, their particular case, the layoffs that they get they're limited to a number of number of weeks along the way, and there are some other steps along the way that can become short of actual layoffs. I won't go into the details because it's pretty complicated, but I think the key thing is that any of these changes right now that are going on have to be negotiated with union. They can't be unilaterally imposed. Although we have heard and seen and filed unfair labor practice charges against some of the campuses which have gone ahead and put people on layoff and put people on furlough without without agreement with union. That's strictly a a violation of the contract, more importantly, of the law.
0: So the the, un- the contract actually trumps uh, everything. They have to follow the contract before they can and lay off people.
1: Of collective bargaining of a collective bargaining relationship, the parties have agreed to basically jointly administer how the work workplace will, will actually work. Now, for a lot of people in the university who come from backgrounds where unions are only something in the bad news in bad news, they don't have much practical experience. You can see that a lot of our grievances turn on people, on administrators and officials and managers and supervisors who seem to think that what they think is best is always the best thing to do. That's not the nature of the relationship, because the relationship is a bilateral relationship and has to be agreed to. Or differently, if the university had the ability to unilaterally impose these kinds of changes on the, on clerical employees, they would have done it a long time ago.
0: I They're think, not, yeah. not legal. I think you're right, because I think sometimes the local HR people know more about the rules than the supervisors.
1: Right, and I think the other thing that's important, which is why I think this limited discussion around restructuring is so devastating, is that people who live closer to the ground, where the regular folks are living and working, know that when you do something, it has consequences. Not only just what the formal ones, but informal ones, how it affects... Not just employees whose hours are reduced or laid off, but also affects their coworkers, And in turn, how it affects their their willingness and commitment to work for the university. I think those folks have a sense of that. I'm not sure that people at UCOP see that directly, understand that in an immediate way.
0: So do you see that they are going to try to impose more layoffs next year?
1: Well, I think that that may be part of it. One of the most powerful devices people in power have is probably less the exercise of their resources, whether it's political, limited right now, or economic, which are substantial, is really the ability to persuade people what Margaret Thatcher was her slogan back when she was Prime Minister of Britain, which was, Tina, there is no alternative. The whole <laughs> premise on this discussion is telling people there is no alternative. Plainly looking at their resources as they report it, plainly looking what their outside auditors found, plainly looking what the bond agencies have included, that is just not true. What they're saying is your alternatives aren't possible. Ours are infinitely possible.
0: We're talking with Peter Donhill, economist, who's been analyzing the UC financial statements. This is Dan Sung with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessary those of the management of KUCI nor the regents of the University of California. Um, I wanted to you've had lots of experience uh, experience. Negotiating with um, uh, the university. Can you compare the UC negotiations with other negotiations that you have experienced?
1: Well, this this goes back to something I've said and you heard me say at when at our presentation in Irvine. Uh, generally speaking, I work in private sector and public sector. I work with building trades, longshoremen, electricians, teachers, university pre- professors clerical workers, all kinds of different folks who do all kinds of different work. And in collective bargaining, generally speaking, one of the things you try to avoid in collective bargaining is you try to basically avoid gratuitous comments or actions which offend people because ultimately you're hoping, if that's your intention, you're trying to work to an agreement that you can live with. My experience, and I've said this before, and I say this carefully because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, is that university administrators are the rudest and most disrespectful negotiators I've ever encountered. Absolutely going away. Now, not UC particularly. UC, I would say, would be in the middle of the pack. It would come among university administrators. And I've dealt with university systems in Washington, Oregon, here, as well as at CSU. And what I would say is that by comparison, university administrators seem to have some notion that they know you don't and you should basically do what you're told. The other thing which is probably more substantive and a practical problem of some import, that's been an issue in every single negotiations we've had. University is disrespectful in the sense that the law requires that under their duty to bargain, they have a legal duty to bargain, they also have a duty to provide information. university is notorious for its unwillingness to provide information. Information that other employers, particularly employers right now, are in action crises have no difficulty or, or and are completely willing to provide information. Certainly, I was doing the city and county San Francisco negotiations this year with one of the bigger unions in town. There were two of them, actually, and we got everything we asked for. By comparison here, what we're told is, oh, our computer systems don't work really well. Our data systems can't generate that <laughs> result. Or we're given information which turned out to be just plain wrong over and over again. Now, that indifference to providing information or providing accurate information does not reflect well, and it doesn't show respect towards employees. I think that's exactly the wrong tack to take in a moment like this.
0: Yeah, I know that other unions have also asked for information prior to implementing these uh, layoffs or these uh, furloughs and uh, got to nothing.
1: I don't quite understand why we have this half-billion-dollar talent up there all over the place, which when they tell us, they can't provide us with HR information, they can't provide us with uh, budget information, all this stuff, which when we talk to people who actually do the work, the people who manage, for example, the campus ledgers, they're telling us that's available every day. They do a daily reconciliation of these things. Now, someplace there's a disconnect. Maybe they need to get around to the campuses more and maybe talk to people who actually do the work rather than the people who, whatever they do, whoever they're talking to.
0: How about at the table, Do they uh, are they more open to discussing uh, you know proposals from the other side, or they do they just uh, go back and caucus among themselves?
1: Well, our experience has been is that the university made a commitment, to previous contract negotiations, the current ones, to engage in something called interest-based bargaining. And what interest-based bargaining is, it's supposedly an alternative to adversarial bargaining. So instead of having usual knocking of heads, you instead express your concerns, show what you need, and propose how it might be addressed. The other party recognizes your concerns, tries to speak to those needs, and provides either a productive counter along the way. UC has committed itself in the last two cycles to doing this. In fact, both union representatives as well as university representatives have gone through training to basically pursue interest rate bargaining. And that seems to apparently work up to a point whenever there's money on the table. At that particular point in time, the university then drops out of IBB, interest-based bargaining, and goes back to adversarial bargaining, and we we're getting so far as everything we propose, the answer is no, just no. Caucus come back, no, we don't want to consider it. As I said, even the alternatives to furloughs, which are only conditioned on there not be layoffs, they wouldn't even discuss them with us. They simply said, no, we're not interested.
0: So um, what's the status right now of involving the Q uh, contract? Uh, have they imposed the furloughs or not?
1: No, they legally can't do that, and they're at least at the highest levels officially making that clear, although we we're seeing this happening at different locations around the state. Um, Their position is, is they understand their legal position, which is they have a duty to bargain, and the duty to bargain is only exhausted at such a time where the parties have met all their good faith obligations and have been certified for having done so by the Public Employee Relations Board of the State of California. They cannot, despite people's talk, declare impasse, which would be a threat made to employees that if they don't come to an agreement, they will simply change the rules. They can't unilaterally declare impasse. They would have to be certified by the state. They can't get the impasse, even be considered for impasse, unless they've addressed all the outstanding unfair labor practice charges. So we're at a point where we're still in bargaining, albeit after an extraordinary long period of time. We're still in bargaining along the way.
0: And uh, Diane Saha, who's the local president of Q at UC Irvine, mentioned at her uh, talk at the rally on uh, September twenty on uh, September twenty fourth that uh, the comparable uh, the wage uh, comparability was uh, that Q members are like 30% or so below market um, value, their their salaries?
1: Well, I think that's something at which we had Kathleen Hurley on. Kathleen is a compensation specialist. She's been compensation director for a number of public agencies, and she works as a consultant to the union right now. And Kathleen's research has absolutely shown, and what's odd is the university's own data shows it too, that Q employees, uh, those in the clerical units are at least 25% behind their comparable peers in those in their areas. And the university has more or less said, well, we think they're behind. Um, our own research shows that, but when we ask for their own research, they still haven't provided it. We've asked for that research at, in February 2008 and it still hasn't been provided. Again, the problem is somehow we can't get it. Somehow the consultant finds it proprietary. This is no different than me asking for budget information. They can't seem to walk over from their audited statements to show their budget crisis, and they can't go from their budget to show their budget crisis. What we get instead is, when it goes back, we'll take it back to the wages for its compensation for a second. So we get stories of how they recognize our concerns, they feel very badly about it, they'd like to fix it in the long run, but they simply can't afford to do that. The same thing they've been telling them as long as I've been working with the union since 2001.
0: Yeah, I think D- Diana's point was that it, w- it would actually just make it worse if there's zero uh, salary increase for the next few years.
1: Well, zero salary increase, please, if You combine it with of furloughs, which are effectively a pay cut, or simply layoffs, it would actually be more severe. It would actually take us backwards.
0: For sure. Um, do, um, do you feel that there's, uh, there's no more commitment to a public institution anymore in the UC?
1: Well, I think that probably many, many people care a great deal about UC. And certainly from my work with the union and travels around the university system, I think that's really clear. People do care quite a bit year to get rich. And plenty they know that now. <laughs> They're not going to get rich unless they happen to be at the higher realms of the university. I think that part of the difficulty is else. It's not who loves UC the most, but how UC is loved. And what UC seems to be responding right now is to his, two his biggest lovers. One are investment bankers who manage its funds, and two, contractors who build build projects on the city. It's something like the University of Texas, the saying goes, the concrete never sets at the University of California. I think what happens mm-hmm. is we're seeing that folks who are paying far more attention to the concerns of their business partners, investment bankers managing UC's money, and contractors pouring concrete onto campuses, than, um, those people who depend upon the university for teaching for research or for public service
0: they, they say uh, UCI stands for under construction indefinitely
1: <laughs> well you're not you're not alone in that story
0: yeah so the the the, the people that finance buildings are, are, are looking for that uh, forward. Well, I,
1: they, they its Watching public institutions, I once I graduated from the University of Massachusetts, I got a master's at the University of Massachusetts, and one of the things we realized was that until we mobilized the contractors, the investment bankers, there was not going to be a University of Massachusetts because there were 200 private colleges in the state at the time and they didn't want high-quality, low-cost public education. I don't think you have that kind of constituency here in the state because UC is so important to California. But I do think there are folks who certainly think that nothing, no sacrifices should come from any of the people who would be involved in either investing the money or in building these particular projects. It's worth noting, for example, that 200 million dollar loan that the university made to the state. Yeah. Uh, we talked with their finance director, Mr. Taylor, Vice President for Finance, about this. Mr. Taylor brightened up and beamed, and the conversation wasn't as much fun before that. They explained all they had done was basically, because of their high credit rating, had gone out and sold what's called commercial paper, which is unsecured borrowing based on the overall credit worthiness of the institution. They had borrowed commercial paper at a very low interest rate, then lent it to the state at the higher interest rate so that they not only provided the governor with $200 million, which he then put back to finish construction projects, which sort of show where the priorities are right now at the University of California, laying people off, cutting classes, raising student fees, and you figure you have to come finish your construction projects. Um, at that particular point in time, we were a little bit surprised uh, because there he was boasting on how clever they had been in terms of having made this deal. Borrow cheap, lend it for a lot more money uh, at a time when everybody is facing these cuts and potential job losses.
0: So it's a corporation.
1: It well, it, it is literally legally a corporation. Yes, it is. <laughs> the difference is that it's a corporation now run by people who think it ought to be run like like Chevron.
2: <laughs>
0: I, I went to the University of Michigan for graduate school, and even there, the public support in terms of public uh, state funding has gone down to very low Um, but uh, people still think of it as a public institution uh... how low can state support run before it becomes a private institution
1: well we should be clear about a couple of things which is that there's been a conversation going on for at least three decades as I know about it of characterizing universities not as public universities but as publicly supported and what's happened in the process is that these institutions increasingly particularly in states where there a department of the state of California try to assert some autonomy versus the legislature. Now, some places they already have it constitutionally in California's case and in Texas' case where the President comes from through the Permanent University Fund, which makes them the largest oil leaseholders in the state of Texas, which puts them on a different footing dealing with the legislature than, say, for the California State University system. I think that goal seems to be a recognition of two things at one time. One, which is that there's more money to be made if you can provide people with tax-exempt services along the way. in terms of whether it's, say, a, a pharmaceutical company using UC Davis to do clinical research trials along the way, and then the university having decided, apparently we're told by the university's actuary, a guy named Paul Angelo, that the university hadn't charged them for the cost of retirement, for retired health benefits, or other word to call roll-ups, about 36% of payroll, payroll expense, hadn't charged any of those customers any money for a long time. Now, for actually for almost 18 years. Uh, When we heard this, frankly, it was one of the two most surprising things I've ever heard in collective bargaining. And he said, well, they did it because they thought it would make them more competitive. You seem to see a goal here, whether it's shifting your investment, as it were, from relatively less than as profitable as possible undergraduate education to the professional schools or out-of-state students rather than in-state students, this attempt to basically generate the maximum yield from the sort of view of the corporation which is not quite the same thing as providing this. Now how far can this reductions go along the way? It's not clear, for example, that the strategy the president's pursuing, the decision to basically punish employees, students, parents, other people who depend upon the university's services through loss of services, loss of classes, wage cuts, elimination of programs, curtailment of extension, or increasing prices beyond what people can afford, it's not clear to me that this gamble is necessarily the best way to win the legislature's heart. So the question is, did he consider that in the process? He might have. uh, Or was this really an attempt to really restructure the university on a more privatized vein? That's an issue a lot of people have raised and have spoken very effectively on.
0: So there could be a, a separate agenda there.
1: Well, I think the restructuring we're talking about is identifying those parts of the university which are lucrative, profitable, and those which are not. Because UC is not a non-profit organization. Last year, they cleared about $400 million. The difference is they just don't pay taxes. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, but likewise, they have substantial amounts of real estate which they value at its historical cost, which means if it was like five acres of land in Berkeley and 1888 cost $5, it's on the books for $5. Now, people like me, bond rating agencies, lenders who read this stuff for a living know exactly what that means. The university is grossly understating its real wealth in terms of land and improvements. But from the standpoint of talking with employees, we hear this story that we're having a major fiscal crisis. I think this is basically what someone suggested at UC Berkeley. This is a variant of Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, which is if you're going to basically see a crisis, take advantage of it, treat it as an opportunity. I think that's what's going on.
0: You know, in uh, terms of the unrestricted assets, uh, it went down the last few years because they uh, lost some control over the, the labs. Is that right?
1: Well, one of the things that happened the, basically, relationship with some of the labs was terminated. And in the process, two, a number of things happened. One, the, their operating revenue from the labs went down, but also their operating expenses went down. Despite that, last year they reported a net income, revenue less expenses, at, from the labs of a billion dollars. That's a billion dollars in profit in ordinary businesses. So in that regard, yes, there's been a general drop-off because their participation is lower, but when revenues and expenses go down, what you're expecting to see is then a reduction in scale, but not really a net loss as a result, and they didn't. They reported a billion-dollar net income.
0: I thought they were still running the labs for the Department of Energy.
1: Well, they're running Lawrence Livermore at this particular point in time, but their role has been substantially curtailed.
0: Ah, I see. And um, so in terms of Naomi Klein... Uh, It's like a shock doctrine, right? You're trying to stir up things by giving it uh, kind of shock treatment.
1: Yeah, and I think that the theory is when you have a moment like this, you can capitalize on it. Whoever basically takes the initiative can capitalize on it. And I think that seems to be... uh, Based on the disparity between their audited statements and what they're publicly talking about, it appears that someone's trying to basically either doesn't know about the audited statements or they're ignoring them in order to capitalize on the current larger economic issues.
0: What worries me is that this could just go on for another two years, at least, and uh, this uh, kind of pay cuts and uh, furloughs and layoffs.
1: I think that's possible, but that's principally possible if people don't do anything, if mm. people don't say no. I've said this in all of my talks, and I'll say it here again. What the experience around the world, here and other places of insurgent movements, dealing with institutions and organizations of great wealth and power, political, military, whatever it is, that we don't have to be as powerful or as wealthy as they are. We simply have to push through their willingness to put, put up with resistance. And what we've seen around the world and elsewhere, and I'm convinced here, based on the university's reactions the week before last to our roadshow and to other unions making cases and other employees making cases against the cuts, is the university seems to have a very low threshold for taking crap. <laughs> it seems to have very, low, very thin skin, and I think in that regard, we should take heart in that. We should also understand that the university has few friends in Sacramento. Now, in the past, employees and unions as well have been reluctant to basically try to pulp the university in Sacramento for fear they would sort of jeopardize the Golden Goose. Well, the Golden goose isn't laying gold right now, except for the people at the very top. So it's time to make that push. I think between the fact that these people have a low tolerance for challenge, that at the same time that they have limited resources politically in Sacramento, I think that this particular projection of this going on forever, that there is no alternative, Tina, as it were, we should call President Udoff Tina, Tina Udoff, uh, on the way... I think we have an opportunity to turn this thing around, and I really do think that's true. I think we're in a moment where people, if they step up, can do something. If people wait for this to go away, Dan, I think you're right. This may well just continue.
0: So uh, organization and solidarity uh, does help.
1: I think that that's the key, because they're counting on the idea that people react emotionally. They react out of their own concerns, they react out of fear, and they react individually as opposed to recognizing that their concerns are issues that are shared by many people. Until we can convert concerns into issues, oh, for example, back in the mid-70s, prior to the mid-70s, spousal abuse was a concern that was, was not unlimited, it was somewhat pervasive in America. The question, though, is what changed that? What changed it was when people realized they weren't alone, that it wasn't just them and their household, but rather it was a widespread issue that something that required public policy response. I think what we need to get people educated to understand is it won't go away, these people won't stop, and most importantly, they can be reversed if we can get out of our own personal reaction and concern and start putting some pressure on them. My experience has been that folks like this have very, very thin skins and a very low threshold for this type of fight fight back. The problem is for most of us, we've been told in school Basically, the people in charge know everything, they're all powerful, there's nothing you can do. I think it's time the University of California, and I think the teachings go a long way towards this, of breaking that notion there no, is no is alternatives. There are definitely alternatives. That's why they're using this opportunity to pursue theirs, because there are other ones that are out there.
0: At the rally on Thursday, a lot of speakers, or many speakers, mentioned uh, or criticized um, that, that saying that you should look beyond this current crisis, but look at neoliberal policies of the of the state and how this is ac- exacerbating the situation what do you think of that
1: well, could you explain that again i wasn't quite clear what you said well i think
0: um some of the professors uh were st- and organizers were ta- saying that this has to p- do with how uh you know neoliberal policies that uh try to uh, g- get the biggest return i sem- uh, i guess for the their investment by you know laying it on the workers in different countries for instance and uh uh, exporting work abroad and uh, trying to change the whole economy and how that, that this might be what's behind all this.
1: Well, you know, um, C. Wright Mills, a sociologist, um, said a lot of wise things about academia because he was an academic himself and this is way before the term neoliberalism got coined but one of the things he did say was that universities were trendy but on a lag, <laughs> they were they trendy, but they were they were among the last people to catch it. And I think, to some extent, much of what we're looking at, as these folks have described it, I guess, is part of a general shift in the outlook, or at least maybe more. Uh, they more more. They simply aren't being shy about expressing their point of view about the need to basically run things on a business like basis. Um, my issue here is the real fundamental one which was: then wouldn't the appropriate response here? be that the University of California then goes it on its own and simply loses its constitutional standing, becomes a a University of Phoenix competitor, starts paying taxes, and then at that point we can all basically use their beloved market mechanism to make our own choices along the way. They don't seem to propose that. They seem to propose that they want to get the state money, they want to use it as they want to, make friends and influence people, and at the same time, They're disinclined to take this core mission, at least as they call it their core mission, as being quite as important as the opportunity to make more money by redistributing and reallocating resources. Plainly, the short end of the stick has to fall on the people without the resources, without the power, and either they're very naive and don't understand this, or they frankly don't seem to care.
0: So they're playing the market kind of at the expense of the workers.
1: Well, I think that they're, they're, that university presidents are like school superintendents, and anyone who's watched the drama around school districts lately recognizes that they spend an awful lot of their money, frankly, sucking up the rich people, rich and powerful people. And apparently the last couple of decades the trend has been university presidents, school superintendents alike have to demonstrate that they're willing to basically kick ass and take names. And in this case, I think that's what's going on right here. I think we have someone trying to flex and demonstrate that he can, in fact, do the bidding of Dick Blum and Gerald Parsky on the regions to basically restructure the University of California to a more profit-centered mission away from its historic public service missions, education teaching missions.
0: Well, on that uh, kind of doc note, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, to add, to
1: add Peter. one thing yeah. for people who want to read our report, it will be posted on cueunion.org and it will be published and available in a video form as well, too. That will be out within two weeks.
0: Oh, great. Thank you very much. We look Thanks. forward to that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we're now going to end. Uh, that was Peter Donhill, economist, uh, who has been analyzing financial reports. Now we're going to end with a um, with uh, some uh, excerpt from s- with some rally um, speaker at the recent rally this past Thursday. And so... Stay tuned. This is Subversity here with KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.
2: Now for a a popular treat. It's my honor to introduce Chuck O'Connell from the Sociology Department. Good afternoon afternoon. Uh, It's probably going to get worse, so enjoy it right now. A student asked me if I was going to give a rousing speech to fire up people, and I said that wasn't my intent. I wanted to give something a little more thoughtful, but if you need a rousing speech to fire people up, I have a short one-word speech. Get off. Now I'm going to give a longer talk, that is not going to let him off the hook, but actually suggests that maybe the problem is bigger and broader than the University of California president. As I read through the printed materials about the walkout, um, and there were two sets of materials, one from the university uh, president's office uh, saying, look, we have a bad crisis, a budget crisis. There's not much we can do here except uh, lay you off and give you pay cuts and uh, raise fees. Sorry, but you'll have to take it, because our hands are tied. The second set of materials said we do have a budget crisis, and it is resolvable, but ultimately it's it's traceable back to Prop 13. And Prop 13, which is known historically as the Taxpayers' Revolt back in 1978, put a cap on property taxes. And people who were property owners uh, and facing uh, limited incomes uh, were quite happy with it at the time. But the, the, the uh, advice that's offered is we must change Prop 13, and what I would like to suggest is that Prop 13 is a symbol of a national policy. It is a symbol of a policy initiated in the 1970s that goes by the name neoliberal economic policy to end the wealth, the social welfare state as we knew it in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. It is a notion that there should be less regulation of business and there should be uh, less of a public sector. More of the public sector should be privatized. And what has happened to the UC and what is happening now is part of that process. Prop 13 was a a major symbol and event in that process, but it alone is not the culprit. There seems to be a a consensus, a bipartisan consensus, I might add, that there is no alternative, that the best system is the privatized one. And before we came to the crisis today, the crisis began to build. before that, the housing market bubble uh, that we had in the last few years, it began in processes like hiring faculty as contingent labor. You know them as lecturers, okay? With temporary contracts and different salary scales lower than the tenured faculty, justified by various arguments. You saw in the move to outsource labor. Later on today, you will see people going around with one-sourced shirts on. They don't have union, University of California union jobs. They are outsourced because they're cheaper labor. So these kinds of signs were already present before we had the crisis. Now, much of the suggestions you get in the literature dealing with the crisis seem to end with what's mobilized on the 24th, let's continue to keep our spirits up and and don't forget to write a letter to your state legislature or legislator and I have a problem with that, the problem is this, it's a little statistic out of uh, political science it's 75 percent of campaign contributions nationally come from the business class the very class that wants to privatize education and destroy it as a public good. And this support, corporate support, is bipartisan. It is bipartisan. So it raises the question, do the the representatives in the legislature represent you, or do they represent those who finance their campaigns? If the answer is the latter, then writing a letter to them is a first step but probably an ineffectual first step which then leads to the question where does your power lie? and your power lies, as Fernando suggested earlier, in collective action and the most powerful collective action that seems to be in your hands at least from my studies of labor history, is the ability, the collective ability, not the singular individual ability, but the collective ability to withhold your labor. And if you don't work, nothing works. But you are not yet at that point. You could be at that point. I just wanted to end by reminding you that when there was another crisis called the war in Vietnam 40 years ago, in 1970, Nixon invaded Cambodia. Not himself, he sent the army in to do it. thank you. <laughs> but when he did that on April 30th and got on television and announced his invasion of Cambodia when everybody thought the war was winding down, 500 campuses across the nation went on strike. 51 did not reopen for the... Remainder of the spring quarter, because the, uni- the college president said the situation's so volatile the, the, we can't reopen the campus. The professors will just have to give them whatever grades they had going into the strike. It is possible to do this. Whether or not it will happen remains to be seen. And my time is up. Good luck. Our struggle is the same. Woo! Here, I, I, I want y'all to help me out with something. So I'm going to call whose school? Can y'all answer our school? Whose school? Our
1: school! Whose
0: school? Our school! Whose school? School. Who's school? Our school! There was uh, Chuck O'Connell uh, earlier at the rally on Thursday. And earlier we had uh, Peter Donahue talking about the uh, UC financial statements and how there is $5 billion in assets, unrestricted assets. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.